Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 108th episode of the Nauticast titled Judgment Day, Part 1, an analysis of a Clash of Kings, Catelyn 4, in which Catelyn Stark faces down the gods and emerges with a clarion call for peace in our time. And then has to deal with that fucking King terrorist, Renly Baratheon, making fun of her. I can't, Emmett, why did we split this episode up so we have to watch Renly die next week? Can you explain this to me? Patience is a virtue, my son, but having committed my life to vice, I understand your frustration. Sadly, we'll have to wait until next week for the actual death of Renly itself. We're splitting this chapter up again, so we're going to cover uh, Catelyn's scene in the Sept and her last conversation with Renly, where he rejects her plea for a great council. And then next week, we're going to cover Renly's uh, death itself, along with the aftermath which might seem like not much territory for next week, but trust me, we're going to have plenty of things to say. It's a really uh, dense couple of scenes where a lot happens in a, in a couple pages. Again, this is just as dense a chapter as Catalan 3. It's not just because we love the Baratheon brother stuff, although we do. <laughs> this is really some of George's like thickest work, thick with two C's work. And, you know, we, we're going to need two weeks just to go into it properly. You're absolutely right. This chapter is outstanding in ways that Catelyn 3 is and expands upon Catelyn 3. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy this one for sure. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jacob Sisson, too, the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valeria, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentlemen's, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampair, Prophet, Forsa- Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Vaderas of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawing. Shamba the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logas, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horseface Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of the Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone say hello to Lady Ashley, who joined this evening just about an hour before we recorded and hasn't given us a special title and name yet. All the same, thank you and welcome to the Small Council, Ashley. Thank you, as always, to all our counselors, and welcome, Lady Ashley. Happy to have you with us. Mm-hmm. And as always, our spoiler warning, as we say on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Doug novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. 
Our question this week comes from the High Bearded Priest, a small council member, who asks, Your graces, we love the character, and it would be worth it just to see the look on Mace and Littlefinger's faces, but do you think status, status, status would be a good king? <laughs> Excellent question from the High Bearded Priest. The answer is no. What do you think, Jeff? The answer is a qualified no. Okay, we answered that one, so we can move Wonderful on, Wonderful right? work. Nuanced, compelling, and rich. <laughs> No, I, I think um, your answer, your reason why Stannis is not a good king is the same reason that I think that Stannis would not be a good king and that he's not worthy of the crown at this point in the story. In the Clash of Kings, anyways, does he become worthy of the crown when he goes north? Well, a qualified so. no still. I mean, more so, but less. But still, like he doesn't quite meet the threshold, in my opinion. But I, I get it, like, at a level, like, he's is he the best claimant for the Iron Throne after we have, after after the death of all of these different kings? I mean, he's the only one left besides Tommen, right? Oh, Euron, Euron, Euron's there. You can choose Euron or Tommen or Stannis or you I'll know, John. I'll take Euron, eventually. sure. Yeah, that's I know you would. A, that's I know you'd take Euron. <laughs> no, look, I think Stannis has policies and attitudes that put him way above a lot of members of his class, and a lot of that gathers, a lot of the hope there gathers together around Davos. But Stannis is perfectly capable of ignoring and sending away Davos when he wants to. He proved that over and over again. No matter how he listens to Davos in a lot of heartwarming moments. There are also plenty of moments where Davos goes, your grace, here's obviously the right thing to do. And mm -hmm. Stannis goes, meh. So why wouldn't that happen when Stannis gets, you know, everything he ever wanted? I think for me, like one of the most haunting and terrifying Stannis moments comes in Storm of Swords when Melisandre's trying to get him to burn Edric Storm to wake the stone dragon. And he says, dragon wings over Westeros. There would be such a... And da Davos cuts him off before he can <laughs> complete what he was about to say. But you kind of know what he was about to say, and it's nothing good. So it's as much as there are aspects about Stannis that I really do obviously respond to and think are, are intriguing and even admirable, I think those would ultimately be like, you know, the first couple paragraphs of his legacy before it all goes up in literal smoke. So I find him, you know, a fascinating, relatable, tragic character. I would rather have him in charge than Renly. But on the whole, no, there are, there are too many uh, worrying signs there. I think... Our our friend and our uh, our godfather, our basically our, our real father, Stephen Atwell said it best. I think we were talking one time several years ago, and he said, "Stannis as a as a king of Westeros, probably not a good time. As a wartime conciliar, yeah, like he's like the guy you want to be leading like the armies in in a, in, a, in a battle type setting. But as an actual political actor and leading the country, probably not the person you necessarily want to have to lead. You want somebody that's more like." Rob, more like Rob is John, yeah, the more best like of the kings. Brand, yeah. yeah. So you, these are the types of people that should be leading. Stannis at this point is not ready for that responsibility, even though he desperately wants it to satiate his lack of love that he's received his entire life. And that's sad. Which and is what makes him relatable, absolutely. Of course. We, you were talking about him so effectively in terms of the stranger stuff the other week as like, you know, being the clearinghouse, like, you know, agent for the North, just getting a lot of the folks who got to be removed from power out of the way. And similarly, you know, Stannis is, is useful in an hour of the wolf kind of way. Stannis is useful in terms of let's, let's pull up all the roots in King's Landing at once. And then if he was convinced to leave, then that would be great. Like that's your ideal use of Stannis. Send him in to put heads on spikes that need to be on spikes and then usher him quietly out the back door. <laughs> Exactly. That's that's your absolute ideal use of Stannis, one time only. Exactly. Yeah, he's like a nuclear weapon, right? Oh, we don't have to have that debate now. Oh, oh, oh! I cannot be retroactively made to co-sign that one. Ta -ta! 
Oh, beautifully done. It's like a temple of doom, heart pulled out. Thank you so much, High Bearded Priest, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here in the Notacast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or high-level patron over at patreon.com slash Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get 25 bonus A Song of Ice and Fire episodes, six Fever Dream episodes, show notes, access to our exclusive Slack, and more. We're closing in on the next stretch goal of attaining uh, 900 total patrons. And when we hit that goal, we will do a total full-out multi-part analysis of my personal favorite chapter on the Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> even though it hasn't been officially published, The Forsaken. If that or other Patreon benefits interest you, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, to join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Mm-hmm. We are just 18 patrons short of actually hitting that goal. Listen, it was 42 patrons last month, and now it's 18. You guys are incredible and crazy. Thank you so much for supporting us. But let's turn our attention back to Catelyn Stark. Last week, our good mom, Catelyn, had, w- had witnessed two children squabbling over who would play with the toy they both won. That is the Iron Throne. Let's find out what happens with Catelyn next in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 4, Part 1. Catelyn arrives at the village sept after sunset to pray. She wonders if the village had a name, but there's no one around to ask because everyone is gone. She enters the sept and finds a decrepit-looking building with seven cracked walls, and where richer cities and towns had ornate statues, this sept only had charcoal drawings of the gods. Catelyn studied their faces. The father was bearded as ever. The mother smiled, loving and protective. The warrior had a sword sketched in between his face. The smith, his hammer. The maid was beautiful, the crone wizened and wise, and the seventh th- and the seventh face. The stranger was neither male nor female, yet both ever the outcast, the wanderer from far places, less and more than human, unknown and unknowable. Here, the face was a black oval, a shadow with stars for eyes. It made Catelyn uneasy. She would get scant comfort here. Catelyn kneels before the mother and asks that she, that is the mother, spare all the sons that are about to go to battle. And as we're going to find out in part two of this analysis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 4, the mother has a refined sense of irony. She also asks the mother to watch over her sons too, and oh boy, about that. Catelyn notices that the wall has a crack down the charcoal etching of the mother, and it looks like a tear to Catelyn. She hears Wendell Manerly and Robot Royce talking outside, but everything else is quiet. The gods, most of all, they're silent. She wonders if Ned ever heard the old gods talk to him, and, hmm, yeah, about that. Flickering torchlight danced across the walls, making the faces seem half alive, twisting them, changing them. The statues in the great septs of the cities wore faces that the stonemasons had given them, but these charcoal scratchings were so crude they might have been anyone. The father's face made her think of her own father dying in his bed at River Run. The warrior was Renly and Stannis, Rob and Robert, Jamie Lannister and Jon Snow. She even glimpsed Arya in those lines just for an instant. Then a gust of wind through the door made the torch sputter and the semblance was gone, washed away in orange glare. I mean, gosh, that's just so lovely. I mean, I really am seeing why you love these Catelyn chapters in Clash Kings, Emmett. This is just really, really good. But then the smoke is in her eyes and she rubs them with the backs of her scarred hands. When she opens her eyes again, she sees her mom, Lady Minisatelli. And we get, I think, some of the only references to Lady Minisatelli in all of the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire. She was calm, had soft hands and a warm smile. And she died in childbirth. Hello, Dead Ladies Club. Her child died with her. Catelyn wonders what Minissa would make of her, and she thinks her mom would think little of her, especially given that she's away from her children now and wasn't even there when Ned died. Oh, Catelyn, it's not your fault, man. It's it's okay, mom. It's okay. Catelyn's head starts swimming and the shadows shift around her. She thinks she should have eaten something today, but she had been too busy. Well, no, not too busy. 
The truth was that food had lost its savor in a world without dead. When they took his head off, they killed me too. A lovely, aching melody. melancholy. It's really, really good. But then the torch spits and Catelyn sees a mother, Lysa. But then the eyes, the eyes weren't Lysa's. They were Cersei's. She thinks that whatever vile crimes Cersei committed, those kids were hers. And she felt them kicking and bore them in blood and pain. But if they were truly Jamie's, well... She wonders if Cersei prayed to the mother, which, fact check, she does once in A Dance with Dragons. She faked prays to the mother to pretend at piety in front of the High Sparrow. Catelyn thinks that Robert would have killed Joffrey and Cersei if he found out what Cersei had done, and few would have condemned Robert for it. Oh, sure, bastards were common in Westeros, but incest was a monstrous crime and sin. The Targs did it, but they had dragons. They didn't answer to gods or men, like, because they're Targaryens. Ned must have known, and Lord Aaron before him. Small wonder that the Queen had killed them both. Would I do any less for my own? Catelyn clenched her hands, feeling the tightness in her scarred fingers, where the assassin's steel had cut to the bone as she fought to save her son. Bran knows too, she whispered, lowering her head. Gods be good, he must have seen something, heard something, and that was why they tried to kill him in his bed. Catelyn gives herself over to the gods, praying to the smith to watch over Bran, the maid to give courage to Arya and Sansa and guard their innocence, the father for justice and strength and wisdom, the warrior to keep Rob safe and strong, and the crone to show Catelyn wisdom. But then footsteps were behind her. It's Sir Robert Royce, and he says they need to get going before the dawn comes. Weary, Catelyn rides from the sept in the village through woodlands where trees lean away from the sea. Then they ride through Renly's camp to the sounds of steel and the winning of horses. Banners are all around Catelyn, but she can't make them out in the darkness. A gray army, Catelyn thought. Gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. As they sat their horses waiting, Renly's shadow knights pointed their lances upwards so she rode through a forest of tall, naked trees, bereft of leaves and life. Where Storm's End stood was only a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. But she could see torches moving across the fields where Lord Stannis made his camp. <laughs> Inside Renly's tent, Catelyn finds candles glowing, making the tent feel like a magical castle, quote, alive with emerald light, which is so fucking good. Two rainbow guards stand outside of the tent with their rainbow cloaks draped over their shoulders. They allow Catelyn in, and she finds Brienne armoring Renly for the battle with Lord Mathis Rowan and Lord Randall Tarly and Lord Randall Smallpeen Tarly standing around him. Catelyn demands to speak with Brenly, but he brushes her off as Brienne fastens a backplate to breastplate. The king orders Mathis to continue, and Mathis talks about how the army is drawn up and ready for battle. But, um, why are we attacking at dawn again? Ah, because according to Brenly, he doesn't want to have said it was he had won through chapter through treachery. That would be completely unchivalrous. He is not about that type of treachery. That is way beneath his dignity. But Randall Tarly points out that his this time was picked by Stannis, and they'd be charging against the rising sun and be half blind. But Renly waves him off, saying that Loras will break him with a charge. <laughs> but what if Stannis yields, Randall asks. Yields? Lord Rowan laughed. When Mace Terrell laid siege to Storm's Hen, Stannis ate rats rather than ate rather than open his gates. Then Renly starts to get cute. He tells the story of Storm's End's mastered arms, Sir Gowan Wilde, and how at Storm's End he tried to sneak out of the castle with three knights. But he was stopped, and then Stannis ordered the man strapped to a catapult and thrown over the walls. Lord Rowan appeared puzzled. No men were hurled from the walls. I, I would surely remember that. Maester Cresson told Stannis that we might be forced to eat our dead, and there was no gain in flinging away good meat. Renly pushed back his hair. Brienne bound it with a velvet tie and pulled a padded cap down over his ears to cushion the weight of his helm. Thanks to the Onion Knight, we were never reduced to dining on corpses, but it was a close thing. Too close for Sir Gawain, who died in his cell. 
Now, Mia Copley, when I originally was writing the synopsis, I originally wrote, what George is committing here is that Renly is a fucking liar. God, why do people like this guy? But a fair reading of this scene is that Stannis orders Sir Gawain strapped to a catapult, but Maester Crescent convinces Stannis at the last minute not to toss Gawain over the walls, or, or Gawain, whatever you want to call him, because they might need someone to eat. Of course, Renly may have been lying and was hoping that Randall and Mathis saw the meeting with his ellipsis, but that's not in the text. So Mia Culpa, Renly, you're still a monster, but at least you might not have lied in this one, one particular spot. Anyways, Catelyn cuts in and says that Renly promised her a word. So Renly agrees and waves everyone off to their battle tasks and drills. But if they find Sir Barristan on the battlefield, spare his life. Rowan objects that Barristan hasn't been seen recently, and Renly knows this. Barristan needs a king to serve, and if he's not at Rob's camp, he's very definitely in Stannis' camp. Man, that is such a cell phone, Renly. But Rowan and Tarly agree, bow and leave. Now alone with Renly and Brienne, Catelyn says that the Lannisters tried to kill her son, Bran. She had always wondered why, but now she thinks that, they, that he caught Cersei and Jaime in the act when Robert was out hunting at Winterfell. So, she wants to go to Stannis and tell him what she suspects. Renly asks her why, and Catelyn says that Rob will put aside her crown, she hopes, and that Stannis, Rob, and Renly could call a great council, have Bran come down from Winterfell and reveal the Lannisters for their treasons and treachery, and then the great lords of Westeros will choose the next king. All will be saved. Renly laughed. Tell me, my lady, do direwolves vote on who should lead the pack? Bran brought the king's gauntlets and great helm, crowned with golden antlers that would add a foot and a half to his height. Time for talk is done. Now we see who is stronger. Renly pulled a lobstered green and gold gauntlet over his left hand, while Brienne knelt to buckle on his belt, heavy with the weight of longsword and dagger. And that is a Clash of Kings Catelyn 4, part 1. Boy, am I really glad we ended up splitting Catelyn 4 into two parts like we did with Catelyn 3, because man, there is a ton to unpack in the whole of this chapter. I love all of it. I love this part of it. I love the second part of it. I love it all. And it's so good that we are doing this kind of like broken up so we can focus on some of these aspects of the chapter, which might get overshadowed by things to come in the second half of this episode or the second analysis of this chapter. Well done, sir. And yeah, much as I sing the praises of Catalan 3 for the last two weeks, I think I love Catalan 4 even more. The two chapters are perfect complements, of course, fitting together into a perfect whole, just as Stannis and Renly are refusing to fit together into a perfect whole. I wonder if that might be a deliberate move on George's part. Form meets content. The showdown of two matched opposite characters takes shape as two matched opposite chapters. Catalan 3 was all about politics, dialogue, family dynamics, and a tone of comic absurdity and frustration. Catalan 4 is all about magic, spirituality, imagery, inner monologue, and a tone of tragic sorrow and loss. Now just as Stannis and Renly have a lot in common under their service differences, these chapters have a lot in common still. Catalan 3 showed off Lightbringer in all its blazing magical colors, and Catalan 4 has some very important political dialogue. But I think these chapters are meant to stand out as iconic in their own unique ways, just like the Baratheon brothers. Catalan 4 is not only a perfect follow-up and counterpoint to Catalan 3, it is a spectacular work of art in its own regard. Every image feels sculpted in light as if by a cinematographer. Every paragraph has a turn of phrase that burns its way into your memory. This is as good as it gets. Yeah, I completely agree with that. This this chapter and the imagery that George uses is just spectacular. And if Catelyn III was that last glimmer at the chance for peace, and that would being the last chance for the Baratheon brothers to quell the storm and put their swords aside, it all ended when Stannis drew Lightbringer and then sheathed declaring that we would see what was, what was meant to be seen come the dawn. 
And that dawn has now come, but instead of it bringing newfound light, the possibility for the sun to shine, Catelyn spends this chapter shrouded in pre-dawn gloom with shadows very, very deliberately inserted by George throughout the early part of this chapter all around her. This is the short night. He's calling readers to think of the long night that's going to be coming after this short night, the, lo- the night of the soul that Catelyn Stark is about to experience. That's a terrific point. I'm going to be talking more next week about how Renly's death has echoes of so many things, like uh, the Red Wedding, for example, and also the, the fall of the long night. And that it's, it's, it's so true in this chapter, this, this first half of the chapter, you see shadows popping up all over the place. Catelyn sees them like scurrying along the wall as walls like mice because George is trying to link the two halves, the two scenes of this chapter together by setting up the shadows before a very murderous shadow shows up in the second half of the chapter. But before Catelyn four grows to encompass the death of kings, it starts on the simplest note imaginable. One soul alone in the dark, reaching out for the light. Catelyn has mourned and fasted and is prepared to give herself to her gods. Night has fallen. There's no one else in the village. They fled, taking their families and their treasures and even the candles they lit for their gods with them. Now why did the people in this village run? They're in the Stormlands, they're not under threat from the Lannister goons currently burning down the Riverlands. They ran because King Stannis showed up with his army. Or because they heard King Renly was on the way with his. We'll never know which, and it doesn't really matter because they're already gone. The damage is done. And that's a perfect microcosm for what's happening between the Baratheon brothers and across the realm they both claim to rule. Just like how their ancestor Duran Godsgrief exposed his people to the elements to sate his pride, Renly and Stannis will salt the earth around their family home with their drive to get at each other, producing nothing with their industry but Lannister victory at book's end. The lines of responsibility between them blur. The act of murder itself is shrouded in ambiguity, both in execution, so to speak, in this chapter, and how it's discussed later on. But I think one takeaway should be clear. Both Baratheons bear responsibility for what happens here. They chased each other down the drain to rock bottom. Stannis's jaws happen to close a second quicker. Renly is just as ready to kill him, and that itself is the tragedy. Brother killing brother. Who cares which one wins? Who cares which one strikes first? Either way, the kingdom loses. Either way, the idea of family, one pack to survive the winter, loses. Even the winner loses. Stannis looks like a corpse after this. There are no winners, only losers. Something is rotten in the state of Westeros, and the solutions seem to be canceling each other out and leaving the problem untouched. Individuals and institutions alike seem cursed with a profound moral darkness, a blindness infecting good as well as bad. Too much light can blind the eyes. That's a great, I love that quote from Salvador from Davos 1. It just really is utilized really well in this chapter by George. And I, and I agree, like ultimately here, you know, obviously we back Stannis's claim legally, so to speak, but it's really not so much who has the legal right at this point, right? About which king is casting the better shadow at the wall, really. Now it's just purely primal. Stannis and Renly are just about to drown each other in blood, as Catelyn thinks in Catelyn 3. And as Renly's going to say at the end of this first part of this episode, the time for talk is over. Now we see who is stronger. Now, we do get all of this from Renly's perspective, which is interesting, and that does shade this traitor in an unflattering lens. But can this conversation be any different across the field in the torchlit camp of King Stannis? I don't think so at all. I mean, 
Though, of course, Stannis is technically asleep at this point in the story, as he can't be roused, as Davos is going to later hear from his son in Davos' second chapter. And of course, as I was saying before, George uses the absence and presence of light throughout this chapter to illuminate its absence as Catelyn enters her dark night of the soul. Like you and Salador San were saying, Emmett, too much light can blind the eyes and blind the soul. And from this mess, an act of blood magic and kinslaying is born to shake Westeros. When the walls close in, when the floor gives way, when the truth is found to be lies and all the joy within you dies, you gotta get right with God. Or gods, in this case. Catelyn Stark walks alone into this darkness at the start of the chapter without a guide, a stranger in a strange land as she was when she arrived in Winterfell. Only this time she doesn't even have Rob in her arms. She's bereft of her children, heartsick and guilty, especially after failing to make peace between Stannis and Renly. And that changes what her gods mean to her. When she was an innocent at River Run, the Seven were smiling faces, watching and waiting, just as she watched and waited for Hoster. All was well in the world. At Winterfell, domain of the old gods, the world of Catelyn's adulthood, the Seven became carved masks. This reflects how she has come of age. Gods are no longer simple caricatures just meant to reassure you. They are aspects of identity, archetypes representing all humanity, masks that you must wear. Catelyn has to deal with a world of deceit, murder, war, grief, but also a world of love, family, home, her squalling infant son grown into a man. The seven faces are one. Light and dark, ice and fire, Stannis and Renly. These things you think are opposites. They are one in God's eyes. The God's eye, you could say. (laughs) You are the sum total of every mask you wear, every light and dark element within you. You are mother and father and warrior, and smith, and maiden, and crone, and stranger. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. We must reconcile them. Truth is produced through a dialectical process, not thesis nor antithesis, but what results from the combination of the two. R plus L equals J, in short. There's that all-important quote from the big R plus L equals J chapter, the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter in A Storm of Swords, from Brand's POV, when Mira is talking as they're climbing up and down the mountains. My lord father told me about mountains, but I never saw one till now. I love them more than I can say. Bran made a face at her. But you just said you hated them. (laughs) Why can't it be both? Mira reached up to pinch his nose. Because they're different, he insisted, like night and day, or ice and fire. If ice can burn, said Jojen in his solemn voice, then love and hate can mate. Mountain or marsh, it makes no matter. The land is one. The land is one. That's an optimistic statement. But the flip side, as Mira says is that the whole, the one, is over-wrinkled. Wrinkled like someone getting older. Because none of it saves you from mortality. Heroes die. Villains die. Some die for reasons born wholly of their decision-making. Others are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Others suffer a combination of both. If all is one, well then the death of one is the death of all. Davos will make precisely this argument the next time Stannis is deciding the fate of a blood relative, Edric Storm in A Storm of Swords. What is one bastard boy against a kingdom? Everything. Ned Stark's blood gushed over the sept of Baelor. Where were Catelyn's gods then? Where were his gods, she wonders. Neither of them saved him. So now all she has is rough chalk drawings. The faint gestures of gods. In part, this reflects the class realities of Westeros. Only in the rich seps of the cities are there statues of the Seven. Only for Lady Tully did someone bother to put out masks. But it also reflects Catelyn's very particular spiritual place at this time, as well as the spiritual place of Westeros. The gods 
are looking pretty fragile. Thousands are praying, crying out for delivery from the war. Those prayers go unanswered. So we see the seven as crude sketches on a wall. This is all they are. This is all they ever were. The gods are stories we tell to make children behave. And when you grow up, when you leave River Run and head north to bury your children in the valley of the shadow of death, you put childish things like those smiling gods aside. Hmm, that's really well said. And as the token spiritual co-host of the Notcast podcast, I, I kid, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Excellent reference to the Apostle Paul there. I really appreciate that, putting away childish things from 1 Corinthians. And I love the statues to mass to charcoal etchings that Catelyn is noting in her spiritual journey, which you're going to unpack here in just a few minutes. Catelyn is showing the maturation of faith from early childhood wonder to the adult mom going to church variety to the crisis of faith now as she approaches middle age. Catelyn doesn't want to be in a crisis of faith here, but from my own experience, sometimes it takes a spiritual crisis to grow in faith and as a person. To Catelyn's great credit, she doesn't give herself over to fear or become nihilistic, at least at this point anyhow. She holds, she fasts, and she holds vigil overnight in the presence of her god, gods. It's both. It's the, in the imagery of the vigils that we see Catelyn performing an almost kind of like nightly ceremony in a sept, right? So we know that knights and would-be knights would spend the night before taking their vows fasting and praying in a church or sept, church in medieval settings, sept here in Westeros. Catelyn is a knight of a different sort. She's a mom. So while she prays to all the gods, she singles out the mother for special attention in the same way that a soon-to-be knight singles out the warrior for his prayers the night before he becomes a knight. And later in A Clash of Kings, she'll make this comparison between the battle on the battlefield and the unique battle that a mother faces quite deliberately. Children are a battle of a different sort. Catelyn started across the yard. A battle without banners or war horns, but no less fierce. Carrying a child. Bringing it into the world. Catelyn knows she's on the eve of battle, but she doesn't ready herself to fight in the traditional sense. She prepares her heart as only a mom can, praying for the lives of all the sons and daughter. Never forget the Briannas there too, who are about to fight in the morning. The problem is that Catelyn's vigil is supposed to provide her individual comfort and solicit the gods' help in this time of crisis. But all Catelyn can see in this sept is shifting shadows as the flame flickers back and forth. All knights bleed, Jamie. That is the seal of our devotion, as Arthur Dane said, but it's not just knights. And yeah, as Varys says, power is a shadow on a wall. We give power its shape, as much as the other way around. The first men show respect for their gods by not naming them by simply alluding to an ancient power they dare not give a face. In this moment of brokenness, feeling like her family and her country and her very self have been smeared on the highway in history's rearview mirror, Catelyn seems to realize that the Seven were never there. It was only ever her and hers. It was only ever Ned, Rob, Arya, John. It was only ever the Lannisters, the Baratheons, her father, her mother, her sister. These are the faces of her life. And so these are the faces she projects onto her gods as light fades from the world. They say your life flashes before your eyes when you die. Catelyn says in this chapter that she is dead, that they killed her when they killed Ned. Is this scene showing us what waits after death? A soul standing naked before the fire casting the shadow on the cave wall, still only able to see the puppets of her own life stage play? Or is this scene showing us the essence of life, not death? We are all playing out these archetypes in our life, whether we know it or not. We are all participating in the great wheel of time. The essence of life, the essence of story. Does life require death to give it meaning, like gods and stories need an audience? Does summer need winter? This is such a bittersweet and emotionally complex moment, because even as George is deconstructing the gods, he is reminding us of their enduring power. 
The fact that gods are just shadows on walls, empty vessels into whom we project our own individual fears and desires, this is a strength, not a weakness. The father endures, not because there's actually a robed bearded guy named the father <laughs> up there in space, but because you project your father and all the fathers you've known, for better or worse, into him. And that's what storytelling is, shadow puppets given life by the audience, crude suggestions into which you project your own story. If that process resonates, then it lingers, passing from story into myth, keystone of collective identity. We complete A Song of Ice and Fire as Catelyn completes the chalk drawings of her gods. And that's what makes this scene one of the most powerful moments in the whole series to me. We are being shown how to relate to songs, stories, heritage, history, culture, meaning, after the bloom has fallen off the rose, after winter has come. Paradoxically, the emptiness of signs and signifiers is precisely why they're so powerful. They are not an iron constant, but the opposite, a fluid subjective vessel for transformation. They are there to be whatever you need them to be. They change with the flickering of the torchlight. They change as you change. Catelyn is sitting in a dark room, a light projecting still images that seem to be moving, faces she relates to those she knows. Is Catelyn watching a movie? <laughs> what are movies but religious experiences, transubstantiation on the silver screen, a shaft of light piercing a dark room? They're not real, but their impact is. <laughs> Master filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu used to say that it is the films that watch us. In the beginning, man made God a flashlight shining back at us. We tell stories and myths to make sense of not only the world, but ourselves. We are inquit shapes, writhing masses of contradictory emotions. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. We invent containers, archetypes, ideas of who we are, and then we fill them like liquid or smoke. King, father, mother, Azor Ahai. It's like that line from the movie that we love so much. And we'll eventually do a Patreon episode about it, but it's, Kaneda, what do you see? Mm -hmm. like, I will not spoil the scene for if you've never seen the movie, but please watch the movie. It's one of the most brilliant scenes in all of cinema. And to kind of borrow from the Apostle Paul again, and continuing from our last quote from the Apostle Paul, what we see now is a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Catelyn can only barely make out the shapes in front of her, and they shift as gusts of wind flicker torchlight back and forth against the wall. It strikes me that Catelyn is having a vision of the flames, so to speak, here, seeing what the fire illuminates and what it doesn't illuminate. And I love what you were saying about the flickering lights as films. You can also call what Melisandre, Axel Florin, I guess, Stan and Simicoro also see as films too. But it seems as though the film that the Relorites are watching is more clear, showing the future or potential futures in the flames. But as Stannis is going to recount in the next Davos chapter, it ain't so clear. Stand before the night fire and you shall see for yourself. The flames shift and dance, never still. The shadows grow tall and short, and every man casts a dozen. Some are fainter than others, that's all. Well, men cast their shadows across the future as well. One shadow or many, Melisandre sees them all. But as we know from Davos smuggling Edric Storm out of Westeros, Melisandre doesn't actually see all. And the true visions glimpsed in the fires are often misinterpreted by Melisandre. And we, we did reference this quote back, back in Bran's fifth chapter in Clash of Kings, but let's revisit it again. The vision was a true one, sir. It was my reading that was false. I am as mortal as you, Jon Snow. All mortals err. 
please, please tell me that Melisandre's quote isn't a meta reflection of how fans of various mediums get the wrong interpretation of the stories they love, even if they're looking at them in the bright sunshine and the bright vision that is brought brought forward by film. But kind of like tying this back to this chapter, Catelyn's interpretation of the shadows on the wall is even less clear than the visions of the flames. It's more like, I don't know, like the after midnight cinema that was inexplicably scrambled when I attempted to watch it as a teen. Uh, uh, uh. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And of course, Catelyn's view here is being clouded by not only grief, but as she says, hunger and just lack of sleep. And all these things, of course, you know, just create a certain uh, hallucinatory effect on her. She's kind of slipping in and out of consciousness. And so all she needs is the faint suggestion of a face on a wall, like a cave painting, like the simplest form of communication and culture and art imaginable to just project all the overwhelming rush of emotions and backstories at play in the war. She is reading the faces of the Seven, like we read the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Just as we notice parallels between characters who are in different families and on different sides of the war, Catelyn sees Cersei's eyes in Lysa's face, which is a great way of expressing that concept. This is political commentary and meta-narrative commentary at the same time. George is saying both that these characters he's he's writing have much in common, (laughs) and also that accordingly, maybe they shouldn't be waging this destructive civil war. If I would fight and die to keep my children safe, Catelyn thinks as she feels the knife wounds on her fingers, how can I judge Cersei for doing the same? It led to this, this war, it led to my husband's death, but I don't mourn the man who tried to kill Bran. Why not? That guy had a family. I'm sure they're mourning him. Why should Cersei mourn anyone who might have endangered her children? Cersei's children are children, like Catelyn's children. No matter whether you project Jamie or Robert's face onto the father, whichever shadow on the wall, hmm. we have motives in common. We have archetypes in common, fears and desires in common. All of this applies to Stannis and Renly, of course. And that's what makes it such a tragedy that one kills the other. We kill each other. We set our hearts on fire, not because we are so different, but because we are the same. That crack that Catelyn sees running down the mother's eye, like a tear as she thinks to herself, that expresses so much. She compares it to her mother, of course. You could also see it as the mother, the goddess, weeping that Stannis has smuggled R'hllor into Westeros, like Davos smuggled his onions. It is the mother that Davos thinks he hears after the Blackwater, reproaching Team Dragonstone for, quote, calling the fire. Or you can imagine that this weeping mother on the wall is Cassandra, Stannis and Renly's mother, weeping from beyond the grave, just like Joanna Lannister in A Feast for Crows, for what's become of her family. Or you could see the mother weeping on the wall as Catelyn, a mother weeping that her sons must think her, quote, cold and unnatural, a mother who, as she says, was not with the father when he died. Or you could see it as just a crack in the wall. <laughs> it only looks like a tear because Catelyn says so. And if she was in a good mood, maybe it wouldn't look like a tear to her in the first place. The Red Comet is whatever you want it to be. Stories crack you open and reveal you, not the other way around. All these shadows that seem to haunt a Clash of Kings are mirrors, windows onto not what's outside you, but what's inside you. Now, as Septon Maribald will say in A Feast for Crows, these higher mysteries are not only abstract, they're also not terribly comforting. And so he keeps the simpler ways in public with his flock. But Catelyn knows that the Seven are one, that the mother can be as fierce as the father, that the crone can be as beautiful as the maiden. And again, this is in part about storytelling. Even as creators use those archetypes, they should flesh them out in a way that speaks to their common humanity. 
Yet that common humanity only becomes clear because of those archetypes. These opposing categories gives you a framework by which to judge similarities. That is the usefulness of character archetypes broad and simplistic as they often are. They briefly clarify the vast contradictory nature of humanity so we can connect the dots. There's the phenomenon in filmmaking called the Kuleshov effect, wherein if you show an audience an image of a man's neutral expression after a shot of delicious food, they will say, he looks hungry. But if you show them the same image of a neutral expression after a shot of rotting garbage, they will say, he looks disgusted. And what does this demonstrate? That the central art of filmmaking isn't the shot, it's the cut. Two images put together is what matters, not one on its own, because the audience mind will intuitively bridge the gap and therefore create meaning, even when that meaning isn't intended. Shadow on a wall. And so opposing archetypes, like Stannis and Renly, in their collision, create more meaning together than they ever could have on their own individually. Out of seven, one. Thesis plus antithesis equals truth. And we see that in action with Catalan. By understanding these similarities, faces running into one another in the torchlight, she is able to discover truth. She combines Stannis' revelations with the projected play of light across the crude faces left by anonymous villagers to arrive at an answer to her questions. Ned must have known. Bran knows too. That was why they tried to kill him in his bed. Spiritual journeys like this one are always about finding the truth, after all. You make yourself naked before the truth, and the truth returns the favor. Now, it's worth noting that Catalan's truth isn't true in the strictest <laughs> sense. Joffrey is responsible for Ned's death and the dagger sent after Bran, not actually his parents trying to cover up the nature of his birth. And once more, Catalan misses the hidden knife of Littlefinger, because her own projections and biases, as a reader, you could say prevent her from seeing him as the stranger. She also, of course, can't see herself as the stranger, which is exactly what happens when she returns as Lady Stoneheart. Again, the shadow is a mirror. But as with the comet, as with the carved masks of the gods, what matters is what you bring to the table and what you take away. Because ultimately, again, there's no one actually in there with Catelyn. The gods aren't there. It really is just her. And Catelyn walks away from that, feeling strong enough to make a last attempt at peace. The knowledge she has uncovered in her sacred quest drives her on. The faces she saw were projections. The truth she uncovered is just another shadow on the wall. But does that really matter if it's helping her do the right thing? You don't fix faith, it fixes you. The power of the shadow on the wall is precisely that it's immaterial. Catelyn found a strength that was within her all along, but she needed the vessel of seven crude drawings expressing one singular truth. Excellently said, sir. I think that's brilliant analysis of this part of the chapter. I think when we're talking about like faith fixing you, we can talk about it in terms of whether faith is objectively true or not, which is a debate that will never cease and never end and never be resolved. But I think also, too, you can look at the impact that faith can have for both good and ill on the people in the real world and the people of Westeros. You know, Maribold does good work in A Feast for Crows, and he's driven by his his faith. But other people, like the High Sparrow, are driven by their faith to do bad work. And so a lot of these, it is, a, it is essentially, in Westeros at least, it is an empty vessel which people can project their own self into that and then draw something out of that as well, which ends up informing their own personal narratives. And I promise that this is the final Bible verse I'm going to say here. I know there is something powerful in empowering and thinking and emoting in, in silence. 
Be silent in the Lord's presence. This comes from Psalms. And wait patiently for him. Don't be angry because of the one whose way prospers or the one who implements evil schemes. Meditation upon your God or just even silence to hear your own thoughts can provide clarity. And I often find this in my own life. When I was working on this this chapter last night, I was very quiet outside and it was really lovely to kind of like sit there in the silence and just kind of hear my thoughts and kind of have them pour out onto the page here. Catelyn has found herself in the midst of silence and when she emerges from the, her vigil, she's stronger than when she entered it. And she's also leaving this vigil, as you were saying, with a plan, a final plea for peace. Absolutely. And as Catelyn sets out for Renly's tent to make her final plea for peace, we see that beautiful prose that I talked about earlier. And this is some of George's best imagery. The long ranks of man and horse were armored in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her. But in the pre-dawn gloom, neither colors nor sigils could be discerned. A gray army, Catalan thought. Gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. As they sat their horses waiting, Renly's shadow knights pointed their lances upward, so she rode through a forest of tall, naked trees, bereft of leaves and life. Where Storm's End stood was only a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. But she could see torches moving across the fields, where Lord Stannis had made his camp. The candles within Renly's pavilion made the shimmering silken walls seem to glow, transforming the great tent into a magical castle alive with emerald light. Two of the Rainbow Guards stood sentry at the door to the royal pavilion. The green light shone strangely against the purple plums of Sir Parman's surcoat, and gave a sickly hue to the sunflowers that covered every inch of Sir Emmon's enameled yellow plate. Long silken plumes flew from their helms, and rainbow cloaks draped their shoulders. Ooh, I just love every word of that. The knight itself is steel, a set of armor, like Renly's. But Renly's armor is green, and this is black. So this must be Stannis' armor, knight falling over the army that will be his. As such, all the gorgeous colors that defined Renly's camp at Bitterbridge back in Catalan II have fallen away, replaced by gray, capturing the moral ambiguity of both Renly's campaign and Stannis' lethal response. What's the right thing to do? The spears are framed as trees, because as I said before, Renly stands in for the children of the forest, overwhelmed by the First Men, and the First Men, overwhelmed by the Andals, and the Andals, overwhelmed by the Targaryens. The trees suffered with each successive wave. So in the midst of R'hllor's wave, naturally the trees are seen as bereft of leaves and life. They've been converted to weapons, they're about to be put in service of a hungry fire god, and will soon burn at the Blackwater, just like the Storm's End gods would. Speaking of Storm's End, it is written as a wall of black blotting out the sky. Again, it's a parallel to the wall up in the north. Stannis' men hold torches as they will at the wall. The lights in the darkness, as Melisandre says. But are they? As we'll see in Davos 2, bright lights can cast terrible shadows. And as Loras says in A Storm of Swords, when the sun has set, no candle can replace it. And this is a terrific visual metaphor for Stannis' campaign. Is his torch worth the destruction of sun and stars? Is his crown worth the murder of his own brother? He comes north to save Westeros as its king, but his torches burn the wildlings' tree gods, leaving them alone in the dark. His candle cannot replace their sun. In his efforts to save the world, will Stannis reduce what he's trying to save to ash? 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And recall here at this point in this juncture in the story, Stannis is still in cart before the horse territory. He's willing to burn down his family, his castle, the godswood that stood for centuries at Storm's End to achieve, to achieve a crown, which will definitely work to, as a substitute for the love he was denied his entire life, right? No. But as you point out, even when Stannis' outlook shifts in a more positive direction, placing the defense of the kingdom ahead of the crown, it's still animated by a destructive, fiery impulse. If it had stopped with the burning of the Seven on the beach, if it had stopped with Renly, if it had stopped with Edric Storm, if it had stopped with the burning of the Weirwoods and the forced conversion of the Wildlings, if, 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 it all ends in one final act of destruction as we talked about in the second part of our prologue chapter for A Clash of Kings. And one which will be ironically rooted in his desire to safeguard Westeros ahead of his crown in the lineage of House Baratheon. When Stannis burns Shireen Baratheon, his daughter, in either The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring, his motivation may be drawn from Davos's later Storm of Swords statement that he placed the kingdom before the crown. In Clash, in Storm, in Dance, in The Winds of Winter, Stannis is the living embodiment of destroying the village that is his gods, his castle, his ancestors' gods, his brother, his daughter, to save the village, Westeros. Mm, that's perfectly put. And the only color persisting in this fallen world is Renly's tent. Amidst the wall of black and the forest of gray, it glows green, a magical castle alive with light. Now you could read this as Renly being the true light in the darkness, as he undoubtedly thinks of himself. But George immediately undercuts this. The green light clashes horribly with the plums and sunflowers decorating the Rainbow Guard Knights outside the tent. And again, this is a brilliant visual metaphor. We are being shown how Renly's campaign has, if anything, too much color, where Stannis has too little. Renly's signature green is clashing with his followers' colors, creating not a gorgeous rainbow, but a sickly cacophony. It's too much of a good thing, contrasting with the abandoned village and its simple chalk sketches of the gods. Describing the emerald light of the candle through the canvas as magical also sets up the magical phenomenon about to occur in that tent. But of course, this magic doesn't belong to Renly, like the tent does, and indeed will kill him. And that's another reason for George to describe the green light as clashing horribly with the Rainbow Guard's armor. Renly thinks that magical light belongs to him along with everything else, but it's about to turn against him and his summer nights. Winter has come. For them. It also makes me think about the green light in Great Gatsby, standing in for romance and happiness forever just out of reach. That's Renly and his peach for Stannis in his dreams. And that's what the memory of Renly will be for Loras and Brienne. And this imagery continues inside the tent. George describes Renly's green armor as being like a forest, with the gold highlights looking like distant fires in that wood, as if Renly's armor is like a window back onto the outside, as if the imagery outside has carried over to the inside. Those distant fires are the torches that Catelyn saw burning in Stannis' camp, and the shadows they cast are coming for Renly. Not only will his armor fail to save him, it foreshadows his death, as if his death is coming from inside him, from his own preparations, from his own war machine. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> but even as you go through each specific image in this passage, and you can talk about what they mean, it's important to consider them together as a whole. What's the strategy here? Taken together, what these images do is establish a strong visual presence in our mind. Just like how Catelyn was metaphorically watching a movie in the Sept, George is relying on a cinematic use of color to ground us in the scene. He knows that if we are watching this scene unfold in our mind's eye, not just reading it but seeing it, the Shadow Baby's arrival will be all the more nightmarishly effective. After all, the Shadow Baby attack is all visual. 
The audience needs to see it unfold, just as Catalan does for it to stick with us, and we're more likely to be able to picture it now that George has done all this work grounding us in the imagery. And that's an important lesson for a writer to learn. When you have a big signature moment like Renly's death, you need to prime the audience for it. Ground them in the visuals, the tone, and your big moment will land so much more than it would have in isolation because your audience's collective shoulders are already hunched. Exactly. And George lets the silence of Catelyn at the Sept, the gloom of the early morning, the sickening look of how the green colors play against the rainbow nights, direct the readers towards the feeling that something big is coming. It makes us feel kind of uneasy. While then also making us feel that nothing bad could possibly happen here, right? Just look at how big of an army Renly has around him. He has Rainbow Knights standing right outside of the tent. And he's got the two greatest lords of Westeros in here too. And then there's Brienne in the tent as well. And we saw her win at the melee at Bitterbridge, so she's practically indestructible. And then you got Renly himself, armored to the fucking teeth. Literally, dude. Like the mask, like this helmet is all the way on his face. Oh my goodness. George spends a ton of time describing how every breastplate, gauntlet, helmet, and piece of armor is attached to Renly. He comes off, to me, seeming like an armor tank surrounded by other armor tanks. But that sinking feeling that George is imbuing to the scene, the silence, the unease. Now that's how you do a twist, man, when it comes to writing. You set it up so you have the mood indicating one thing and the visuals indicating something else. It's brilliant on George's part. That's a really good point with the literal structures around Renly, he's setting up Renly as untouchable, but with the tone and imagery, he's hinting that all those layers of protection are about to fall apart at once around Renly, and then the entire army is going to have to swirl around and reconceive of itself. Before that, of course, Catelyn enters the tent to find Brienne armoring Renly for battle, a battle that won't happen, and the armor won't protect him, because as the light indicates, we are in the domain of magic now, and magic cares not for your armor or large armies. But for the moment, Renly is going over strategy with his most experienced and cunning lords, Mathis Rowan and Randall Tarly. Tarly, of course, is the military mind. Rowan seems to be the more politically minded one. We see that in how he glances carefully at Catelyn before continuing, wondering if she can be trusted. Rowan is encouraging Renly to attack before dawn. Of course he is. <laughs> Hasn't that been this whole campaign, the Lords of the Reach using Renly as a vessel, a Rorschach blot, a shadow on the wall, to grab as much power as they possibly can? And Renly shoots back that this would be most unchivalrous, and he doesn't want his reputation to suffer. And this perfectly captures Renly's strengths and weaknesses. On the one hand, he's always got a watchful eye towards his audience, thinking about his image, because it is the source of his power. He is a very good politician. On the other... Renly didn't seem to give a damn about respecting Stannis and doing the right thing when it, claimed to, when it came to claiming the crown itself. Same goes for his command that Stannis' corpse be respected. That's nice and all, but you're still only killing him. You're still only making the corpse in the first place to silence the truth and cement your own power. Renly makes minor concessions to honor in the context of a deeply dishonorable campaign. It's also how the Tyrells work. He learned it from watching them. It's like how he clearly intends to revert to the strict primogeniture status after shattering it in his own case. Renly wants to get past how he's coming to power. He wants to be able to tell himself he's being chivalrous even as he kills Stannis. Catelyn is here to prevent him from just moving past all of this. After her spiritual journey in the Sept, she has come to stand up for the truth. Meanwhile, Renly is busy ignoring the advice of Randall Tarly, his best general, and prepares instead to send the unexperienced Loras Tyrell into the teeth of the rising sun. As such, he might not even be able to kill Stannis after all, honorably or otherwise. 
And how ironic is it that Renly, repeatedly associated with the sun, fails to respect its power? That perfectly sums up his superficiality, how he refuses to take power seriously, even as he accumulates more of it than any of the other kings. I absolutely agree. And we're also seeing why it's so crucial the roles that John Aaron and Ned Stark played in moderating Robert's hot-headedness. John Aaron seemingly provided the stable hand of governance of Westeros, while Catelyn notes that Ned would have counseled Renly not to make the headlong, heedless rush to Storm's End without his baggage trains and the rest of his army. But no disrespect to Mathis Rowan, who seems like a okay person for a Southern Lord, and every disrespect to Randall Tarley, there are no John Aaron nor Ned Stark, respectively. But even if they were made of the same stuff that John Aaron and Ned Stark were in their leadership abilities, they'd still be on Renly's side for seeming ignoble reasons. They're two men who have thrown their lot in with Renly for, as Stannis correctly notes in Davos' second chapter, no better reason than dreams of power and glory. And that type of mentality has its impacts on leaders and how leaders lead. At a core level, Ned Stark and John Aaron supported Robert from the get-go because of the injustice and murder perpetrated by Aerys II Targaryen. They came into the war with a righteous Cassus belly on their side. They, or at least Ned, left feeling not nearly so justified in rebelling as they started, to be fair. But that's such a contrast to these other two lords, Randall Tarly and Mathis Rowan. These guys were first Targaryen loyalists, then ostensibly loyal to Robert, now Renly, later Joffrey and Tommen, and will probably end up on young Griff's side in the Winds of Winter. Their loyalty is to their own self-interest, ultimately. And so long as what the king says or does doesn't interfere with that, they're not going to object, though Mathis might look fit to gag at such orders. He's basically the Barristan Selmy in lordly form. When the order is finally given by the king, they're the shut-up-in-color types, seeing only the end state rather than the road littered with the corpses of the Knights of Summer. Hmm. Perfectly said. Right after that, though, there is an important exchange about Stannis that, in my opinion, comes the closest to a real justification for Renly's coup. Tarly asks what happens if Stannis yields. Rowan laughs at that, reminding Tarly that Stannis ate rats when he was the one holding Storm's End against them. He'll break before he bends. As Asha says, he'll never turn back from his course. On one hand, this elevates Stannis above a world dominated by corruption and indulgence. Rowan seems to have some grudging admiration for Stannis' resilience, and I think the readers are supposed to share that admiration to an extent. Because then Renly chimes in with his own memories of the Siege of Storm's End, and in the process, explains his attitude towards his big brother. As I said in our Catalan 3 episodes, one of the reasons Stannis is so furious at Renly is that he starved in part to keep Renly out of the hands of the Mad King. Stannis never got those calories back. That's probably why he's so skinny compared to his brothers. <laughs> and now here comes Renly with his feasts, stealing Stannis' crown, ignoring the sacrifice that was made for him. I do sympathize with Stannis there. But as in Catelyn 3, we have to consider how this looks from Renly's perspective. And from Renly's perspective, Stannis is the punisher, not the savior. Stannis was the man who strapped down their master at arms, a man Renly had known and presumably liked for his whole young life, and prepared to catapult him off the walls of Storm's End, where he would explode. Renly can't forget the man's eyes. This is horrifying. This is the same heinous shit Joffrey will pull at the Battle of Blackwater, catapulting Stannis loyalists into the middle of the battle. Now, of course, Stannis is not a cackling sadist like Joffrey or the Mad King. As Davos thinks to himself in A Storm of Swords, there had been no anger in Stannis when he cut off Davos's fingers, only an iron sense of justice. Stannis is not a monster. He is a well-intentioned man, committed to a worldview, 
that is irreconcilable <laughs> with reality. But does that distinction matter to his victims? Would Sir Gawain Wilde have suffered any less from his catapulting because his killer was trying to do the right thing rather than slate a sadistic urge? There is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man, after all. Stannis only holds back because Crescent tells him that, hey, we might have to eat those guys if the siege continues. Why fling away meat? So he only avoids one atrocity by preserving the opportunity to commit another one. <laughs> Same deal with Davos, saving Edric Storm's life from Stannis, but failing to convince his king that sacrificing innocence is in general unacceptable. It's galling to come back after a dance with dragons and realize what a hypocrite Stannis is on the subject of cannibalism. During the Siege of Storm's End, cannibalism was a prospect he was actively considering, enough to influence his decision-making. But when the Peasbury men do it to not die on the march to Winterfell, oh, that's over the line, and they have to not only die, but burn to death while screaming? You make a fair point, I think, and it's definitely hypocrisy. But as always, with the stand man, it's hypocrisy with pragmatic purpose. Don't fling gay one over the walls, we might need to put meat back on the menu. Don't do cannibals with dance dragons, or his army will cease to be. And I totally get George's intent to show Stannis as a hypocrite here, that a just man can act unjustly and act against his principles. But I like that George makes Stannis' hypocrisy a pragmatic, greater good sort rather than a purely self-interested one. The problem as ever for Stannis is that no one can see past the Dark Lord vibes he's putting out because he never or rarely explains himself and his actions and his rationale. Exactly right. Best work in the dark for better or worse. And Stannis may see himself as a font of justice in an unjust world. That's how Crescent and Davos see him too, and they have reason to see him that way. But that's not how Renly sees him. For Renly, Stannis is forever associated with the look of horror in Gawain Wilde's eyes and the memory of him dying in his cell. This is what monsters do, as far as Renly is concerned. The Tyrells, his future in-laws, are the ones who fed him after the siege ended, now we can sputter and shout and point out that the Tyrells are the ones who denied him food in the first place. But that doesn't change the effectiveness of it. The same pattern persists after the Blackwater. The people of King's Landing embraced the Tyrells for delivering food. Even though it was the Tyrells cutting off supplies to the capital, that led to mass starvation in the first place. It works. Politically, it works. We don't have to like it, but it does. Bread and circuses is a cliched phrase for a reason. This is why Renly doesn't think of his actions as crossing the line. To him, Stannis crossed the line into inhumanity long ago. He is the boogeyman from Renly's childhood, and so Renly thinks the realm will suffer with Stannis as the king. Now, I don't adhere to Renly's logic, but I do understand it. I don't think this would make him a good king, but I do appreciate why he thinks Stannis would be a bad one. And I think, as we were saying for the opening question, Stannis would be a bad king here in A Clash of Kings, and... Probably a bad one by the end of by the end of a dance with dragons. Definitely one by the end of the Winds of Winter. But there's, in my mind, there's a real distinction between Renly and Stannis and how they reflect on their actions. As we're going to see in Davos's second chapter, Stannis has given a lot of thought to his hypocritical pardons of these Southern lords. You are right to reproach me, Davos. I have punished men for lesser deeds than what I am doing with these men. I have you know forgiven them and atoned them because I need their armies. Stannis, to me, has always struck me as wholly introspective to a fault, again, rarely communicating his reasons and forcing readers to infer or theorize on them. But Renly's lack of introspection kind of bothers me. No, it really, really bothers me. He starves an entire city and doesn't expend so much as a wink thinking about the city or hell, even empathizing with those suffering from his direct action. I'd even 
I mean, for, for me, hell, I'd even take Renly reflecting on his own backstory as someone who suffered the same fate as the King's Landers are currently experiencing. Is he unaware? I, I kind of doubt it. Renly seems quite intelligent. Instead, I think he never talks about this piece of it because he knows he has to shroud his campaign in chivalrous optics. And he has something like plausible deniability here, too. Plus, any reminders of Storm's End that don't paint Stannis as that Dark Lord I was referencing earlier are damaging to the optics of Renly's cause. Wait, Renly, you're trying to kill the guy who starved to save your life from captivity or execution by the Tyrells by Aerys Targaryen's loyalists? That doesn't seem like a really just cause on your behalf. Perfectly put. Yeah, I think that he has to frame it. Renly is always like, you know, reframing himself with a new audience, as you've said in these chapters. So when the, when the lords depart and, and Renly grants Catelyn an opportunity to make her case for peace, Brienne stays behind, continuing to armor him in splendor, hinting that it's already too late. Catelyn lays out the narrative that has emerged clear in her head, putting all the bits and pieces together into a single explanation of what has happened to power in Westeros. She has seen, in her mind, what is casting the shadow on the wall. The opening moves at Winterfell in Book 1 return to prominence. The first big twist of the story, Bran's fall, takes center stage as the key moment in determining not only what's happened to Westeros, but what happens now. All of A Song of Ice and Fire so far has collapsed into this single moment. Catelyn puts forward a proposal that could bring about peace in the name of truth, a great council. Let's stop the war. Let's put down our crowns and swords and talk honestly about what has happened to our country. Let us put innocence despoiled, the injuries inflicted on children by the Game of Thrones, at the center of the conversation. Let us offer a clear, coherent objection to the source of our ills. As Davos says in A Dance with Dragons, they are all suffering because the Lannisters stole the throne. Of course, there is a whole lot wrong with Westeros beyond that. As we saw with Chiswick's story, there was a whole lot wrong with Westeros united and at peace under one king. But the war makes everything worse. And it's very difficult to make anything better as long as the war continues. Catelyn is doing the right thing here, committing herself to sacrificing Rob's pride on behalf of the restoration of peace and truth. There is room for debate on how realistic this is. We'll talk about the ambiguous precedent set by previous great councils later. But in isolation, Catelyn's proposal relies on Stannis setting down his crown, which he won't. <laughs> it's also not guaranteed that she could persuade Rob into accepting the council's authority either. Maybe Even if he was personally up to it, he might fear that his lords wouldn't go for it. It kind of seems that way when you get to a storm of swords that Rob's like, I, I really can't do what you're asking me to do to set the crown aside because my lords would just kill the shit out of me if I did that. But I do kind of wonder whether there's a kind of Jon Snow putting his kingship aside to save the kingdom vibe. Kind of a bit of foreshadowing work in this chapter. I mean, we saw that in season seven of the Emmy Award winning game, the Emmy Award winning show known as Game of Thrones. Have you seen it? That John did what Rob probably couldn't do and what Renly and Stannis will absolutely refuse to do. He sets his crown aside for the greater good, gives his crown up to Daenerys Targaryen in order to save Westeros from the coming apocalypse. Now, the stakes seemingly at this point are not as high as they were in season seven of the show, but they're fucking coming, man. Those stakes are still present even at this juncture in A Clash of Kings. I think that this is a setup for that later struggle, right? This is the last chance to unite against the largest threat of the Lannisters, just like Westeros, as you zoom out, still has a chance to stand together against the others. If Renly really was the good king, he would set his crown aside at this moment, like John in the show, like Maester Aemon, embrace the truth and the chance for peace. And doing so wouldn't even be that much of a sacrifice on his part, because the odds are good 
that Renly would triumph at that council and pick his crown right back up again. Renly is likable. Stannis is not. Renly already has the reach and Stormland votes at said council in his back pocket. Stannis has no allies, no friends. That's how he is in this position to begin with. Renly would likely emerge as the sole legitimate king for every faction other than the Lannisters, and then probably defeat the Lannisters with ease. And if he did that, Renly would indeed be the rightful king in my opinion, and if Stannis continued to resist him after that, he would be an unambiguous villain. I mean, absolutely. I mean, imagine the heroic chivalric optics that would practically lift Renly onto the Iron Throne. One man selfishly places the crown aside to right the wrongs of the kingdom and determine who is going to be the actual king of Westeros. It's a golden opportunity to win yet more of Westeros to his side without lifting a single sword, which is kind of what he's been trying to do, at least through the end of, a, of uh, through the end of Catelyn's second chapter in A Clash of Kings. So it's not even that it's just the right thing to do. It's the smart tactical decision that Renly could have made in this in this juncture. Exactly right. It's not not just noble, it's also he could still win. Like Melisandre at the parlay in Catelyn 3, Catelyn is giving Renly one last chance to repent and do the right thing for himself as well as Westeros. And just like at the parlay, Renly refuses. In fact, he laughs in her face, because Renly takes nothing seriously to the end. Even a slight risk to his power is unacceptable. Why should he risk it? In Renly's mind, force offers a guarantee of victory, so he commits to stripping society down to brute force. Renly asks Catelyn if direwolves vote on who leads the pack. And no, they don't, but we're not direwolves. We're humans. We left the state of nature long ago. And of course, there was, you know, whole branches of philosophy arguing in the other direction. Philosophers like Rousseau, who venerate the state of nature and argue that humanity's inherent nature is good and... That is distorted and corrupted by all the systems and institutions that we heap upon our shoulders. We beat that good nature out of ourselves. But the cynical flip side of that is our systems and institutions are what separate us from pure survival of the fittest. And that gets at the great duality of Renly Baratheon. Is he like a utopian optimist who just thinks everything is going to work out because he's great? Or is he really the most cynical person in Westeros? Is he a social Darwinist? The time for talk is done, he says. Why? Because Renly says so? Because diplomacy is cancelled the second it might be inconvenient for the self-declared best king? And then comes the single most crucial line of dialogue delivered by Renly Baratheon, exposing the rot behind the glittering surface. Now we see who is stronger. As in Goodfellas, your killer has come to you with a smile, pretending to be your friend. The court jester is violently promoting himself to king, laughing all the while. As Sandor tells the Brotherhood, Maybe the sword's prettier, with ribbons hanging off of it, but it will kill you just as dead. By the same token that Stannis's sense of justice doesn't comfort his victims, the atmosphere of wine and roses surrounding Renly doesn't erase the blood he's happy to have on his hands. Now we see who is stronger. The Game of Thrones has stripped down every bond we might have with one another, national and personal alike. You win or you die. Renly has pulled it all on the line to win, but as we will see next week, he's going to die instead. That's so brilliantly said. I love that. And I love what you were saying earlier about how Renly saw Stannis as a monster in his youth and how that colors his impression of his brother to this present day in A Clash of Kings. And while I absolutely think that Renly exposes himself as the real monster just before the shadow baby monster rolls in, I do kind of see where Renly is coming from. Renly has built Stannis up to be essentially Sauron, right? And you cannot negotiate with Dark Lords or Adolf Hitler. They will only bind and enslave you to their will. Now, 
as you were saying, Stannis is not Sauron in temperament and action. He's not objectively that way anyways. He's a pretty gray dude who can be who can negotiate and be a bit flexible. But in Renly's mind, he did his part in good faith, which absolutely was not, to talk. And now they see who is stronger. Hey, Donald Noy said something about this in John's first chapter in Clash of Kings about Stannis, right? Stannis is pure iron, black and hard and strong. Mm. It's those great perfect parallels between these two characters. That's just, that's a... Uh... Been been the core of what we've been talking about all through the, the Baratheon brothers story. They're just they're so different and yet so similar. So I think that uh, takes us into foreshadowing and groundwork, sir. What's being set up in this chapter? So George is going is reminding us in the first part of this chapter that Barristan Selmy appears to have just simply dropped off the face of the earth. If he's not with Rob or Renly or Stannis, where could he be? He's with the Greyjoys, right? He's obviously with, you know, Balon Greyjoy. He's supporting the rightful king of rock and salt there on the Iron Islands, right? No, of course not. He's headed for Daenerys Targaryen, and Renly is right that Barristan needs a monarch to guard. But he never considers that said monarch might be a Targaryen. He might want to serve the Targaryens once again. Mm, exactly. That's, that's, that's the great little joke is that they dance around every single possible option of where Barristan could be, except the, the, the king he's actually going to be with, the monarch he's actually going to be with, who's, who's Dan. <laughs> so, similar to the scene with Catelyn in the Sept, Sansa will pray to the Seven and shiver at the sight of the stranger before the Blackwater. And this is just one of many moments in common between mother and daughter, and it cements the idea we've been talking about, that Stannis is the stranger given flesh. George wants to reemphasize that idea at the crucial moments in the, the Baratheon storyline in A Clash of Kings. Right, and I love the imagery of the strangers having a dark face with shining eyes, which is something that we see in characters like Quaithe. Is she the stranger as well? I'm not sure. I kind of was reading this chapter and be like, is that Quaithe? But no, I sure hope not. But yeah, definitely the imagery is being associated with Stannis as the stranger, which gets repeated over and over and over again, as we talked about in Catelyn's third chapter. Third little bit of foreshadowing is that Catelyn wonders if the old gods ever talk to Ned when she's in the Sept. And we see this in A Dance with Dragons, actually, when Bran speaks the word Winterfell through the heart tree and Ned whirls around wondering who was there. And I have to imagine we're going to see a bit more of that in Bran's chapters come the Winds of Winter where Bran is going to be able to speak to his father. And I do wonder how those conversations are going to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, these these conversations with the gods, it can be a, a lot less metaphorical when it comes to Bran's powers. He can have, he can have these direct conversations, although they're, they're as dangerous as they are, you know, tantalizing for sure, given what Blood Raven warns him about. And of course, speaking of Bran, you have this this very interesting line from Catelyn when she's talking about the council she could possibly set up. We will send to Winterfell, so Bran may tell his tale, and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers. Let the assembled lords of the Seven Kingdoms choose who shall rule them. In the wake of season eight of the show, is that King Bran foreshadowing? That he's being called down from Winterfell to tell his story, and then a king will be chosen to rule by the assembled lords of the Seven Kingdoms, in this case, Bran himself? It might be. Who has the best story but Bran uh-huh. Stark, right? I mean, it's a much uh, not love line by the, by the fan, but I think it's actually a pretty interesting and cool line. I would think that George was probably going to go with something like that come Dream of Spring where Bran's story is going to influence why he is chosen by a great council to become the king of all of Westeros or king of the north, as some as some believe, so to speak. But it does kind of like take us into an interesting discussion for the final piece of this analysis, which is... What about these great councils, right? What about them indeed? I mean, this is, you know, this is one of the more frustrating areas of like a Song of Ice and Fire backstory 
to, to get into because the great councils pop up all over the place, but they're contradictory and don't set much of a strong precedent, which I think is mostly delivered on George's part because he mm-hmm. wants to show how they're kind of like stopgap efforts and band-aids and potentially Catalans would have been as one as well. But, you know, when we're, t- we're talking about the great councils of Westeros, one of the, the first big one we talk about is, is, is the council of one of one in terms of, you know, setting the record straight in terms of how primogeniture between uh, genders work in the wake of a bunch of kerfuffles about who's going to be the heir of the old king, Jaehaerys I. Yeah, so the Council of 101 was all about who's, like I was saying, who's going to inherit from Jaehaerys I. And it ends up essentially ratifying this idea of male line ignatic primogeniture, which essentially means that the first male is going to inherit unless there's absolutely basically no males left. There's a bit of nuance there, which I'm not really engaging with at, at this point in, the, in that council. That, that council, to me, it, it feels like one that doesn't have as much relevance to the potential great council that Catelyn wants to call. But I think the farther, but I think, but I think that there's there's a there's a bit of precedent there, and that we we're seeing. Could you call it proto democracy about the lords of Westeros choosing who is going to be actually inherit from Jaehaerys the first? I, I don't want to definitively say that George is sourcing this to historical things, but you could see the potential that the elements of democracy are kind of forming as a kind of ether matter from which a potential republic could spring in Westeros at some point down the road. Mm, yeah, that's true. I mean, you can you see a, a little effort to to set down a, a standard that will prove stable and prove useful for handling transitions of power. But of course, it just immediately leads to, to greed growing up on both sides of the issue when, when it gets forced during the Dance of Dragons. So immediately people say, oh, that didn't really work out in terms of setting <laughs> an established president we can live with. So uh, then we move on to the, the Council of, of 136. You know, we have the, the Council in the wake of the destruction of the Dance with Dragons. Right. So Aegon III calls a council in order to replace the members of the small council that have either turned traitorous or have died. All the the events for that have ensued from the Dance of the Dragons. And we do get a small council chosen by the High Lords. So is this the potential, like, again, ether and, and ember matter, which can then spring forward some sort of like representative democracy, like the Senate or the House of Representatives in the American system or, a house, or the Houses in Parliament in the UK system? Again, I'm not sure if it has a lot of direct relevance to this council that Catelyn wants to call, but I think it is interesting in talking about the foundation for choosing people who are going to advise the king that you've already elected, right? Potentially someday down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, again, you see this this attempt to resolve a massive dispute created by the great, you know, ego and collisions of kings, and you see like the this wellspring of the lords is like, oh, okay, can, we can fall back on this power structure. You know, we can we can make sense of things at the lord level when the royal family is falling apart. But then, of course, that that leads to the the question of, well, why don't why aren't we just in charge? Period. Which kind of you know <laughs> starts to feed into uh, Robert's rebellion eventually. But before we get to to Robert's rebellion, of course, we have the the, the Council of of two thirty three, which I think is the most kind of relevant one in yes. terms of talking about Stannis and Renly because it's the one we know. Some details about in terms of these different factions and about why like a, a compromise candidate emerged. Right. So the Council of 233 has basically the Targaryens attempted to choose who's going to be the next king of Westeros. So we have something similar to the Council of 101, although in this case, because the Council of 101 established male ignatic primogeniture, we don't actually have any female claims put forth, if I'm not mistaken. I think there may have been one If now that I, now that I'm thinking about it. Ultimately, though, who gets chosen but Aegon V, the unlikely, after the crown is offered to Aemon Targaryen, and after, of course, the Blackfire claim is uh, rudely rejected, shall we say, in the, in this claim. So this council, I think, like you were saying, 
saying has probably the most relevance to what we're talking about with Catelyn's story, and that we have the Lords of Westeros choosing essentially someone who is unlikely to be the King of Westeros. And I want to say, you know, we, we've been talking about, and you brought this up in the foreshadowing groundwork, that choosing someone who is unlikely to be the king seems to me to be pretty strong foreshadowing for what is going to happen at the end of the story. Likely that Bran Stark will be chosen by a great council as probably the most unlikely person to be chosen. But he does have an interesting story, and that interesting story is likely going to feed into how that choice is going to be made at the end of all time. Yeah, in so many ways, so many of the big plot points early on in the series are roads not taken that will be taken later. You know what I mean? And this is one of them, where the potential Great Council to decide on a new king hinted at potentially to be Bran and Catelyn's dialogue, as I was saying, ends up getting forestalled here by Stannis and Renly. Well, you know, more specifically by Renly, but again, Stannis wouldn't have gone for it if he'd bothered to hear the proposal. And so it will play out later with the next generation, with the more reasonable people, or with the people who are just, you know, less less damaged and full of less baggage and backstory that they've had to that they had to go through. And so it's 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 kind of ambiguous. Do you think – how do you feel about great councils, Jeff? Like do you feel like we're being told that they're the solution or that they kind of perpetuate the problem? I feel that when we're looking at these great councils, like the Council of 101 I think made the wrong choice, right? The councils comprised of nobles doesn't necessarily lead to the best results. And the Council of 233 leads to Aegon V, but he is barely chosen over the objections of all these lords who look at him and be like, this guy's been hanging out with the small folk. I don't think we should be having this guy lead our realm because we don't want any peasant opinions actually entering into the discourse, the hashtag discourse of Westeros. And that is something that I think it speaks against councils. I think councils can make the right choice, but... At the same time, when we're talking about elections to kind of establish, to put it in a broader context, elections can often lead to a bad result. Perhaps the 2016 election could be the most interesting and most recent result or the, the recent UK election, the parliamentary election. I think I tend to favor democracy, you know, just, you know, as a principle, you know, I'm wearing the American flag shirt after all. And that, uh, that does, I think, lead to better results than simply an inherited monarchy. But do great councils actually work? Do council systems work to bring the best rulers to the fore? Perhaps a perfect system they do, but humans are flawed and the nobles of Westeros are flawed above the average, in my opinion, they're flawed much more strongly than the average small folk that is roaming around the world of Westeros. I think I definitely prefer a, a more democratic system. I think the, the question for me is whether councils serve as an effective bridge away from inherited monarchy towards a democratic system or whether they don't really function that way at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And whether yeah. they're just kind of like half steps that inherently fall short and just like bring a lot of biases to the table. Because, you know, like I said, I think if Renly emerged from the Great Council as king, I, I think he would have, in my opinion, a much stronger claim because he would have put down his crown in order to enter into that room, thus demonstrating his good intent and, you know, putting it all on the line. They'll be like saying, okay, Renly, you've, you've proven that you care about something more than selfishness and self-advancement. At the same time that the Great Council will end up, would end up probably reifying this guy who I don't think is really up for the job at a substantive <laughs> level, doesn't speak well to those councils. So it's it, it, it diffuses power a little bit and gets you away from just the spectacle of, oh God, it's that one guy with a crown and he's crazy. <laughs> So it inherently, I think, blunts some dangers, but I don't think it deals with the real problems. And I think we saw that with Robert. You know, who put Robert into into power? A coalition of lords from across Westeros. And then he sat around. <laughs> so I think it's it's an improvement. I'm not sure if it's 
what matters, which is an improvement leading in the right direction, a step that will have other steps after it. I'm, I'm not sure I see that in the series yet. I, I agree. And I think, you know, we, we have the potential what if councils, what would have happened if Rhaegar Targaryen had been able to call the council as he wanted to do, potentially at Harrenhal, but he definitely talks with Jamie as he as Jamie recounts in Feast for Crows about calling a great council to set to wrong the rights of his or set to right the wrongs that his father had committed. Would that actually led to true or real reform? Would Rhaegar's children have been as good as Rhaegar seems to have thought of himself to be? It's impossible to say, as, as as stated over and over in the series. You know, the gods flip a coin, and the and the head of the coin can land on madness or greatness. And it's a great time to be living in Westeros if the head of the coin is landing on Aegon the Fifth, or Daron the Second, or some of these guys who weren't so bad. But it's a bad time to live in Westeros if the coin is landing on Maegor Targaryen, or is landing on Aerys the Second Targaryen. And I think that is what councils. At, at least in their, at least in their, the form that they're supposed, they imagine themselves to be, would prevent these mad kings from rising up to the fore. But I don't think it ultimately would lead to a substantive revolution and reform to the people of Westeros, as well as to the ruling structure of Westeros, which has typically been pretty bad altogether. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, obviously we're projecting forward what Westeros might be like and we're dealing with our own sense of where the books is going in George's context. So it's not, it's so different from projecting politically forward in the real world, which is also fraught with complications and uncertainties. And, you know, I think a lot of what, what George is trying to get at in this book specifically is these, these things you think are the obvious automatic solutions to political problems turn out to be more complicated. And that doesn't say you should just throw up your hands and commit to nihilism or say that anyone trying to change things is stupid, just adopt the South Park approach. But that, you know, you should be skeptical of of quick shortcuts. As, as Dallas says in The Storm of Swords, the shortest road is not necessarily the safest one. And I think just like it's tempting to fall back on Renly and, and, realize, and think of him as like, you know, a proto-Democrat, when I think he's actually a step backwards, I think the Great Council, you can think about it as like, oh, it's, it diffuses power from just the one king bit. You know, maybe it, it just it, maybe it just reaffirms the power of vassals like Randall Tarley. And maybe that's not actually better than, you know, reaffirming the power of the Targaryens or the Baratheons. I absolutely agree there. And I think that is a good spot to conclude for this analysis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn Four, the first part of it anyways. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. Follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter on Twitter at PoorQuentin or uh, at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of IceandFire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight, who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, 
Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, and Septon Murrayville Hedefair. Thank you very much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, very, very much. So, join us next week as we stay right here at Storm's End for the second half of Catlin 4, in which King Terrorist Brindley Baratheon is righteously vaporized by a drone strike. Right, Emmett? That's exactly how I think about it, too, sir. It's just pure triumph. We're going to have so much fun with that nightmare of a scene. It's going to be a lot of fun. So we get to kind of transition from the kind of quiet moments to everything being on fire and Catelyn and Brienne running away for their lives. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys, some of you all literally, next time.